You're listening to the Kaiju Apostle Podcast, a deep dive into Toho's rich history of monster films and discovering what lies beneath the surface. Whether you're a hardcore or casual fan, or somewhere in between, if you've ever thought there must be something more to these movies than people in rubber suits, then this show is for you. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Kaiju Apostle Podcast. My name is David. And I'm Chris. And we do have a special guest with us tonight. Uh, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself. I am Benjamin Jasons. For those that know me on Twitter, I am the Big Bad Band 90. You can tell it's not Henry because he didn't cut us off to do his intro. Hello and welcome. <laughs> yeah. No, we, we love you, Henry. Uh, ben, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself for those who may not know who you are. Well, thank you for having me, first off. Uh, for those curious, I have interviewed a ton of people on the Godzilla series. My first interview was with Yoko Higuchi on Shin Godzilla. I write for Godzilla movies and sci-fi.com. I have one of my recent interviews was with Norman England. And now I've got eight more lined up to the side. Wow. Which to clarify, Norman England is not Freddy Krueger. <laughs> <laughs> Someone told me that when I mentioned that name and they're like, Oh, Freddy Krueger. That's awesome. I'm like, not quite. I think that's Robert England, and it's like E N G L U N D. So it's like England, I think. I yeah. Don't know. Someone's gonna correct me on that, but um, yeah. So you you've got a few interviews coming up, and obviously don't want to spoil them, but I know you've been sharing a few, and uh, I'm really excited to see what comes of that because I think that's something that we're all kind of lacking right now. Is there's no content coming out for these movies right so like this is just this gives us something else to be like hey these are these films that we love what really happened and having people who are involved no one else is doing that so i'm really excited to see these uh these interviews come down the pipeline can i ask a question that we didn't discuss before we started recording about these interviews yeah absolutely well, i'm yeah. gonna do it anyway <laughs> um like briefly, like without getting into too many details about movies themselves, unless you need to, but like, how does knowing the behind the scenes impact the way you watch the movies now? That's a good question because when you Thank look you. at the behind the scenes work, you realize the craftsmanship that goes into them. And it doesn't really affect the overall quality of the film because as long as everything is executed the way it should be you're going to have a solid film in front of your eyes yeah okay that's a good point i think sometimes with some creatives on like twitter with like star wars i've tried to avoid that because sometimes twitter personas and the work they produce can you know they can stand at odds so it's good to know with godzilla that getting into the behind the scenes doesn't affect too badly are you referring to all the interviews with like J.J. Abrams and Chris Terrio here recently? Well, I mean, if Abrams <laughs> is actually doing the interview, but yeah, yeah, you know I mean, what I mean. Yeah. yeah, 
Yeah. No, I, I'm the same way. I think it's something where there is too much, but I think if it's done right, like the interview you did with Norman, right? I remember reading that and just like, it, it was nice because you got to see a little bit of the good and the bad behind the scenes. Like he was very honest without being explicit about what happened. So I think for me, I have a deeper appreciation for what actually happened, even if my view of the films didn't change just because you understand everything that went into it. Right. Exactly. So, but no, Ben, we're excited to have you. Uh, I know when we talked, I mean, a few months ago about having you on, um, we were running through a few ideas of which movie. And I mean, you immediately were, I think it was really like Shen and then Mothra vs. Godzilla were your two main ones. And obviously this, this lined up really well. Um, we'll see if we even get to Shin Godzilla if Chris <laughs> isn't burnt out by that point. <laughs> hey, if what was that? 2000, 1999? When was that one? Uh, 2019. Uh, 2016, excuse me. Oh, okay. So we'll have like Godzilla 98, obviously, then the 14 movie, and then that one is what you're saying? Yeah, there's going to be a few. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking, I, where did 2019 come from? All right. Anyway, before I sound, <laughs> I lose my credibility here. So before we jump into the movie, um, I just wanted to share something really quick. So part of part of doing the social media side of things is Chris has graciously allowed me to kind of steer the ship, so to speak, with interactions and stuff like that. Because uh, I think we've kind of realized with a lot of the comments coming in, Chris, half of the stuff you're, you, you messaged me and you're like, I have no idea what they just said. I think it's good. Right. That, or I make a meme out of it. And then I have to look up spoilers to make the meme, but you know, yeah, the meme is worth it. <laughs> oh, dude, I'm so excited to share that one here in a few months. It's so good. The reason I bring that up is because I did write a article here recently within the past week. Um, and, t- and it's on our, on our website, the kaijuapostle.com. But uh, it's uh, Confessions of a Reformed Gatekeeper. And really, my goal was to kind of hone into how I used to view Christianity as well, right? And how I could be very dogmatic with my beliefs and the way that I shared that. And it's not even that my beliefs were necessarily wrong. It's just I had to be humbled and realize the way that I was sharing them wasn't necessarily helpful. Um, But the reason I bring that up is because we did have a really good comment and I'm not going to be able to read all of it. But it's from Luke. He does a podcast called the Earth uh, Destruction Directive. Um, But he's talking about how, you know, when he was in high school, you know, he he got into the fandom because for a while he didn't even know a fandom was a thing, right? The blessed days. I mean, that's... Yeah, but I mean, that's even for myself when, you know, the 2014 movie came out. I was like, I knew other people liked Godzilla. I just had no idea fandom was a thing. Um, so he says, you know, for many years, even after he entered the fandom, you know, he was teased and ridiculed for liking, you know, Kaiju and Tokusatsu, even by fans of uh, people who liked anime and Transformers and so forth. Right. Which is strange. Like we all like this nerdy crap, but we're making fun of each other. Um, so at the end, he just he, he goes, he's like, my governing attitude for fandom is to do my best to have respectfully questioning attitude. If someone likes a film, I don't. I want to ask why. What do they take from the film or show or comic or whatever that I don't? Same thing if they dislike something I like. What didn't work for them? Not going to say I always succeed, but I do try. Ultimately, like you say, everyone starts somewhere. And not everyone gets to the same destination. 
Maybe your first exposure was Godzilla vs. Megalon on a late night, late night TV show, movie show, excuse me, and you adore that entry above all others. I've never met that proverbial person, but if I do, I'd really like to hear their thoughts and have a discussion, which I did have someone message me and tell them that is how they started on the film, so they do exist. But I just, that was just encouraging to me because that's our goal, right? Is, you know, none of us start out with our favorite film being All Monsters Attack or, you know, these kind of the films that we've had to grow to learn how to appreciate. So I think, you know, that's kind of been a goal of ours is going back to some of these films, like even Godzilla Raids Again, right? When we did the podcast, I didn't like that one. And then we came into it and I have a deeper appreciation for it now. Now, Varan, that one can never i'm I'll probably never watch it again right but that's <laughs> i had to go through that myself and i think chris you could probably agree with me on that yeah well it does make me laugh that the fran is the one it you're listening to that one thank you all for listening to that one just go listen to godzilla yeah. rates again there's a lot of prime chris content y'all missed out on no i i just think you know again that's kind of our goal is not only visiting these films that we all love but just creating that conversation of like we all are here for the same reason so um so yeah let's uh let's get into why everyone's listening uh we are discussing the 1964 film mothra vs godzilla uh the unique thing obviously being is there's two godzilla films released this year which was not always the case um and they both are freaking good which uh surprising right you get two films in one year and it's actually good content um so plot summary uh for those of you who may be a little rusty on this film so when a typhoon strips a giant egg away from its home a group of fishermen who have been down on their luck think they've struck gold when our heroes investigate this phenomenon a local tycoon typhoon and tycoon i just realized that's funny (laughs) uh announces he's purchased the egg and soon, plans are made to build a, an amusement park around it. However, it's revealed this egg is actually Mothra's, and the Shobijin from 1961's film have come to J- Japan to get it back. Unfortunately, the business tycoon and his financial backer aren't having it, so despite our hero's finest attempts, the Shobijin return to Infant Island empty-handed and with an ominous warning about what will happen if the egg doesn't return before it hatches. <laughs> Before that happens, though, another threat rears its head. Godzilla reemerges after his fight with King Kong and ravages Japan once more. Now the race is on. Will our heroes be able to convince the infant island natives to help before Godzilla reaches the egg? Or will humanity finally meet its end? So, getting into the staff here. We have our regulars. Uh, directing is by Ashiro Honda. Uh, screenplay is by Shinichi Sekizawa, producer uh, Tomoyuki Tanaka, music Akira Ifukube, and special effects by E.G. Tsuburaya. Now, the cast is uh, Akira Takarada comes back in a leading role as Ichiro Sakai as a newspaper reporter. Um, Yuriko Hoshi is uh, Junko Nakanishi. She's also works for the newspaper as the photographer. Uh, we have Hiroshi Koizumi as Professor uh, Shunsuke uh, Mura. And then we have Yu Fujiki as Jiro Nakamura. He's also a newspaper reporter. And then we have the Peanuts back as the Shobijin. Uh, Yoshibumi Tajima is going to be Kumiyama. He's the uh, business tycoon, the owner of Happy Enterprises. And Kenji Sahara is uh, Jiro Torahata. 
And June Tazaki is Arota. He is the uh, editor of the newspaper. So uh, before we get into the context and trivia, Chris, this is always my favorite part. What were your thoughts before getting into the film? Well, I think before getting into it, this is when we talk about our our movies about the monsters or about the monster fights or the humans. I mean, this one on the title seemed like it was going to be an entirely monster fight centric movie. So I was a little nervous. I knew it was your favorite, but it still made me a little nervous seeing the title like that. But I thought it was Mm -hmm. pretty actually getting into the film itself. I was, I was really interested because the plot reminded me of like King Kong or even like, yeah, I know this was 30 years later, but the lost world, but I appreciated the fact that instead of like King Kong already being alive or the T-Rex already being like an adult, it starts with the egg. So it's like, mm-hmm. there's not the immediate threat. There's just the almost prophetic threat. And how do you react? Like, it'd be interesting to compare the like a T-Rex seems like an immediate, like, Oh, that's going to eat me right. The second compared to an egg, which is so it's, it's almost easy to sympathize with the businessmen who don't want to bring the egg back. Cause it's like, it's just an egg. I don't, I don't see what the danger is. Yeah. They didn't experience Mothra the same way. So I thought it was an interesting, it was an interesting little dynamic there. And what, what would they have to believe about the girls saying, Oh, it's going to hatch into something terrible, except for, I mean, the 17 kaiju that have already attacked Tokyo at this rate. But (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And that is something that this is probably the first film where we actually see that it's connected to a previous film. Um, I mean, there are very direct ties to the, uh, the solo Mothra film from 61. Um, How about you, Ben? I mean, this is a film that you obviously have a lot of, um, trying to think of the right word. You've, you feel very fondly about this film. You've told me that more than once. So what is it about this film that made you want to be on this episode? Well, to be honest, as a kid, you know, growing up in childhood, it wasn't really a favorite of mine then, but as I have grown older and have come to understand more about the film, I've come to appreciate it more. And I think the thing that really stands out is just the different messages that the movie offers. Like the Brotherhood of Men, for example, that's talked Mm -hmm. about in the film. That's something that's been seamlessly shot to hell over the years. Yeah. And pardon my French, but (laughs) uh, when you look at the messages, you know, there's capitalism, there's you know, the brotherhood of men, you come to appreciate that more because it impacts a little bit more on your life. Mm. Yeah. And it is a film where you're, you're right. The, the idea of this unity, um, I feel like as Honda distances himself from these films, you don't see it nearly as much. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Granted, in this film, we have more of a caricature with the antagonist, so to speak. Um, but with later films, as we'll see, it's it's almost like the bad guys are so 
outlandish that you're just like, okay, that can't be a real thing. <laughs> Whereas in this film, you know, yeah, they are a bit, you know, out there, but they're like very viable threats, so to speak. And the whole message that he has to say actually has something to say. Mm-hmm. Like that is probably the one thing with, with, uh, and Chris will see this here soon with the Fukuda films is like, I love them, but I mean, you, you really have to dig deep sometimes to get substance out of them compared to, I mean, what we're looking at here today. So, you know, just a little, little trivia, cause kind of what actually my first note here is just write what you're talking about, Ben. Um, so what a lot of people may not know, and I didn't know this until I really started diving more into, uh, Honda's biography is that, you know, Honda actually worked on all the scripts that for the films that he directed, right? He wasn't just a director. He was getting in the nitty gritty, so to speak. So that whole appeal to the brotherhood of humanity, like that wasn't present in Sekizawa's original screenplay. That was something Honda actually would add in along with Toro Hada, right? So that idea of having the, the financial backer wasn't something that Sekizawa had thrown in as well, which was interesting, right? Cause Sekizawa always, I mean, he's, he seems to have a lot to say about capitalism, but then this shadowy figure, so to speak, was Honda's idea. Um, so yeah, I, I, it would have been really interesting to me to see this film without that appeal to unity, which obviously we'll discuss later. Mm-hmm. Well, especially in light of just having done Etrigan in our previous episode, mm-hmm. there's some fertile discussions to come out of that. I am curious, though, what what the movie would have been without some of these themes, without Honda's additions, just because that feels like that's a lot of the core of it. So I would be really curious what a stripped down edition would look like. Yeah, but uh, but I think I think part of that problem, and I know so Nathan Marchand at the Monster Island Film Vault, he has a really good uh, YouTube video panel that he did at G Fest last year about getting into uh, uh, Sekizawa and Kimura's screenplays. And I think that's just something where me personally, I've had to realize that even with like Gojira, right? I mean, yes, Honda had a lot to do there, but like he wasn't the only person involved. And a lot of times when we have these discussions, we can be kind of reductionist Mm -hmm. with how we're analyzing this, right? We just talk about Honda, 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 which, yeah, he's a huge part of it, but he's not the only one involved and the screenwriters are generally the ones that unfortunately are ignored unless the screenplay sucks. Then of course, that's when you kind of get drawn out a little bit more as we've seen with critiques about the rise of Skywalker, right? You know, it's of course it would have been if the film was good, no one would be asking, well, okay, let me put it this way. It's not that the film's not good. I don't want to say that, but (laughs) <laughs> if the film was universally praised more, we wouldn't sure. be seeing all these questions being asked to Chris Terrio, I don't think. I don't know, because Endgame had a lot of that too. But I don't know if that's the hill we need to die on right this second. We, You can message me on Twitter about that. But um, <laughs> I think what I was... what Was it Henry? And I don't remember if it made it into the final cut of our episode. But when we talk about these being a full cast, full like a full team production, 
thinking about the design of the Godzilla suit being like a burn victim skin. That was Henry. Yeah. yeah. Like it is. I mean, it's more than just one person telling a story. And I think that's why I really appreciated that you do the entire cast that you do, because we may like colloquially speak about one person, but it's good to acknowledge all of these people who come into it. And I think, you know, with your interviews, you're seeing that same thing, seeing the way that people that we may not think right away influence the um, story can have that same influence. So I think that's really cool. Yeah. So just a few little asides, because, you know, like I said, I like, you know, we're talking about all this stuff that makes the film, right? Um, So initially, Sekizawa actually had, and this is from, the next few points are from Honda's biography. Um, Sekizawa had Godzilla going back to Relisica before going to Japan. So they were going to incorporate that element from the solo film. Um, Not sure why it got nixed, probably just, you know, needed to cut down, right? Um... So at this point, we're also starting to see that the films are becoming a little bit more family friendly. Um, Honda's quoted as saying, you know, now that movies are being overtaken more and more by TV, uh, Toho is targeting kids, not just adults. So we have to make something that all ages will find interesting. But in order to not patronize viewers and dumb things down, he does clarify that kids are more mature than we think. So this kind of makes me think that when people talk about these films being kid friendly, but then they're like, well, why would you have, I mean, there's times where like with this film, I had to fast forward through the part where, uh, you know, Torahata shoots, um, uh, Kumayama. Right. I'm like, I don't want my four year old necessarily watching that. Yeah. And I have to do that with some of these films. But then you think, you know, kids programming back then is a lot different than how we see it now, you know, cause even with like Ultraman, I'm like, Ooh, that was, uh, that was a bit more intense than I was expecting. <laughs> well, and I think what we don't realize is that kids TV these days does focus on like some pretty intense themes and topics still. I think we have like this idea where everything's SpongeBob, but it's not really a fair. Even SpongeBob though, like I remember the first time I realized how many sexual innuendos they slipped <laughs> in there. Like I think it was the episode with the f- I'm like, oh my god. (laughs) Sexual innuendos are one thing. I guess I'm looking at like Steven Universe as it deals with trauma and and family and destiny. Yeah, no, I'm just saying like I just don't know if Spongebob's necessarily the best example for like you know, I would say like maybe like Tumble Leaf, right? I just watched that with my son and I'm like, this is actually a really cute show. Like there's nothing... It's so innocent. Mm. And I'm like, it's you don't find that very often at no, all. No, you really don't. And then the last little bit here. So this was actually really funny to me. So this film marks one of the only conflicts between Honda and Ifakube. So they're on the record of working really well together. But apparently there was a scene that Honda wanted music. But Ifakube said, no, it's going to be fine without it. So Honda agreed, right? Ifakube didn't write anything. Well, when the film went around for staff screenings, Ifukube saw Honda had added music anyway. <laughs> so Ifukube said, so I glared very hard at Honda-san and he just shrugged his shoulders kind of in- innocently and said, sorry, very softly. <laughs> and that was it. But what a the rest of it, yeah. So the rest of it is just like, you know, I guess Honda would say that, oh, I don't know much about music, but then he would come in and like have all of these like very helpful 
criticisms and feedback into the music process. And I think that's kind of been my takeaway in reading this biography is like, not that Honda is a perfect person by any means, but people are very eager to praise him for the kind of person he was and the kind of father he was too. That was very encouraging to read. And even in my own life of like, I don't know, it was just, it was refreshing. Hmm. So, so yeah, we've, we've got a couple you know, concepts we really want to dive into. But Ben, you were telling me that one of the things that you really love about this film, and I mean, kind of alluded to this with the interviews, you know, knowing what's going behind the scenes and such, but you were saying that the special effects were something that really stood out to you. And you said that you had uh, kind of done some research on that. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, we'd all love to hear that. Uh, just the certain aspects of the movie that really stand out are the adult Mothra's battle with Godzilla, because a lot of people may know this and may not know this, but it was a combination of puppetry suits, Mm -hmm. the Mothra prop and stop motion all put together. Hmm. It doesn't seem like it seems pretty seamless if they're really using that many different mediums. Maybe not perfect, but I didn't pick up on that. Well, given the time and the budget, you know, they they worked with the resources that they had. And to be fair, IG Subaraya's miniature work here has withstood the test of time. Oh, yeah. That was actually a comment I had left where when Godzilla makes landfall, that miniature work is still some of the best miniature work I've seen in any of these films. Yes. <laughs> so you, when you preface one of those comments, you know, may know, may not know, you can guarantee for all of those that I do not know. So <laughs> <laughs> if you have any other of those fun tidbits, you can at least, do you have any to share that I for sure don't know? <laughs> Well, the, the the destruction of the incubator that was holding Mothra's egg, a lot of people may not realize this either, but uh, when it comes to Godzilla using the tail whack to smash the incubator, they actually had the guy holding a tail prop to smash into the incubator. The guy's filmed off screen, but you just see that his tail smack into it. That was another effect I thought was... Uh, captured really well. Okay, that's pretty funny. So, I have a question. Was there something that happened to, like, loosen up Godzilla's jowls? Is, like, was that on purpose? (laughs) Or, like, was that something that happened and they just never fixed it? Like, it's not a bad effect, but I've just, I've wondered that for the longest time. I think it was something that they hadn't decided just to go ahead and run with like they didn't have the time to fix it they just went ahead and went along with it yeah it makes it unique i like it but i was just like i wonder if like something happened because i mean you have that scene where very clearly he trips right and then he starts (laughs) clawing on the the building there which i mean part of me is like i don't know how intentional that was um but I will say with the puppetry, it was a little bit more pronounced for me this time around because there's that scene where he gets his tail stuck in the tower and then the tower falls on him and you have this split second of like Godzilla like screaming 
and you have this face and it's like almost like they took a split second of the puppetry work at the end and spliced it in there which i thought was strange um but that's when it like really reaffirmed me i'm like wait that face and i realized it was a different design i was like that's got to be a puppet uh, yes and it was wow i didn't pick up the, on that uh, at all. <laughs> <laughs> well the, the scene from my understanding with uh Hiro Nakajima inside the Godzilla suit when he trips mm-hmm. into the uh, the the castle. Uh, was, I think it, what happened with that was he was getting to the point of exhaustion and it mm-hmm. actually it tripped and fell into that. Oh, and wow. instead of that thing crumbling the way uh, Subaru and his team had crafted it, it didn't break. So they had to they had they had a extra. Uh, crewman filmed in behind the castle to help destroy it when he actually goes and claws it down. Mm. That's awesome. Can I just point out that I know you already think I think this, but when you said jowls, I of course heard bowels. So I was like, oh no, why are we talking about loosening his bowels? <laughs> Did I miss it? You know, I, I wasn't thinking that, but I will say when I was watching it last night, it was me and Jasper and my wife was sitting there too. The part where Mothra, the larva comes out, she's like, oh, that's disgusting. I'm like, babe, we've had a kid. That's normal looking. (laughs) (laughs) I can guarantee I've seen grosser in real life. (laughs) Yeah. And she's like, yeah, you got a good point. And was like, you know, you just, you got to appreciate that Oki afterbirth, right? Oh, you really don't. (laughs) Oh, Michael Scott. Okay. Uh, So before we uh, start talking about frying up placentas, so getting into (laughs) uh, being a dad has ruined me. That's for sure. Okay. So the film itself, it's interesting because in David... Uh, and you're going to correct me, Ben. So is it Callet or Collat? Collat. Collat. And that's what I thought. So, um, which we did draw the winners for that. Ironically, uh, the two winners were Eli and Elijah. I was like, that's <laughs> really funny. Um, reading David Collat's book, he had mentioned, you know, off the cuff pretty much that like, this is considered like the best Godzilla film. And, and by by consensus, right? And I, I think before we get into the themes, I, I really do want to discuss the quality of this film because it's so much different than what we've had previously so far. And I say that because this to me is pinnacle Godzilla. So Gojira, hands down, is the best film and it will always be the best film in regards to execution, quality, overall message, the score... I get that. But this film, I feel like, and I want to hear your guys' thoughts, it captures the severity of what humanity can do, but it also gives us the monster fights that we all like, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's that's the thing that I've realized is no matter whether you think humans are important or not, we're here because we do like the monster fights. And the fact that we do actually get a very comedic film without it feeling super slapsticky right so Mm -hmm. you take this deep message but then you flavor it with good japanese humor and you get some fun action and to me i feel like this is gonna this is like pinnacle 
Honda, Sekizawa, just Showa era film. And that's, I like, in a way, I can agree with him where I don't know if it's necessarily best film objectively, but I think out of every film that we're going to review, this is still probably number one for me. So I know, Chris, you don't have a lot of reference on it, um, but maybe you could speak to what you think in comparison to the other films after Ben shares his thoughts. Sure. Well, it's uh, it's in my top five. That much I will say. Uh, for the longest time, I never did consider it to be that great of a film. Mm-hmm. But that was from my childhood to about my teenage years. When I went to revisit the film, you know, like I said earlier, I discovered the meanings behind it what it offered and just how good of a classic it really turned out to be my overall thoughts on it. You know, it's, it's a beautifully crafted film and you had Subarai and his craftsmen firing on all cylinders. You had Ifakube's outstanding score for this film. Mm. And then of course the storytelling from Cheryl Honda. Yeah, I not not David has given me grief about this before. I'm not a huge score guy, but yeah, I, this one it definitely starts to stand out a little bit. So before I get into my thoughts, though, can I? You said like as a child, you thought as a child, but now as an adult, you think like an adult. As Paul says, did you go into this movie thinking you like? Were you just like you just turned it on one night and you suddenly liked it more? Did you? Have something that happened in your life that you're like, I should revisit this, give it a different chance? Uh, well, when I first saw the film, it was broadcasted on TNT's Monster Vision Marathon. That was many years ago. But as a kid, you know, I couldn't stand the fact that here are these two calip- uh, caterpillars and they <laughs> defeat, you know, everyone's favorite monster, Godzilla. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing that irritated me, and I never did care for the movie. But it was up until 2014 with the legendary Godzilla film coming out. I decided, okay, let me just go back and revisit these. And I was glad I did, because when you look at them now in your adulthood, you start to see the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. I love that it was like, the wrong monster won the fight. Cause like <laughs> if I were a kid and like night, saw a movie from 1964, I would have just been like, Oh, this is boring or it looks silly. I wouldn't have been like, Oh man, the wrong person won the fight. That's still kind of a very like <laughs> film critical thought to have <laughs> to not like it the first time. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But yeah, I think, in terms of objective quality, this is the best one we've had, and it'll probably stay on top until we get to 1998, or maybe before in 68. Is that when Son of Godzilla comes out? There we go. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. And, um, but no, I overall, I think, I think what I really appreciate this one is, you know, you had alluded to this, but as Hannah Montana once said, this movie gives us the best of both worlds. We get the monster <laughs> fights. We get the human story. And what I really liked about this one, and, you know, I really go for the the really 
easy, the low hanging fruit when it comes to my film criticism. But like, I kind of liken this one to Black Panther in that like Black Panther is the contextual story, but it Mm -hmm. also like gets into some universal concepts. And I really like how this one has a more like it's still grounded in Japanese history, Japanese culture. There's still the whole context of the Godzilla series behind it. But now you get into like talked about the brotherhood of mankind, talk about nature versus capitalism. This is we're starting to see some of those themes bubble up where just as like Atragon was very like timely when we watched it again two weeks ago. This this one still seems very timely as well in terms of like how do we talk about the way that capitalism and environmentalism meet? What kind of dangers do we do we face when we go overboard with capitalist ventures? But it's not told from like a universal. I mean, it's still grounded, so we still have people to mm-hmm. hang on to. And like you had pointed out, we don't have this like outlandish. He's not terribly outlandish because in a world where certain people have Twitter accounts and also have very high government offices. We've started to see outlandish like cartoon characters become reality. And so this guy Mm -hmm. doesn't, doesn't feel too far out, but just as like when you watch black Panther, it's hard for, at least for me as a white middle-class suburbanite to not think that Killmonger might've had a point somewhere in there. There's a little bit of sympathy to be had with the antagonist here in terms of like rebuilding Japanese economics, like rebuilding tourism, maybe world relations to an extent. I wouldn't say that I'm like, oh, totally, he's right. But this is a good one to deal with that. They might have a point. So, See, there's there's two things I'm going to disagree with you on. Is One, I because I know someone's going to try to correct us or stop oh, listening. It was actually 1967 for Son of Godzilla. <laughs> Um, I, I had to check. I was like, wait a minute. Chris got a date, right? Uh, I was like, nope, he did not. So see, and I'm to a certain degree, I would want to agree with you on there. And I think this is a good jump for us to get into the economic side of thing. Cause that's actually where I want to talk about is less about capitalism, right? Because I'm not an economics major at all. So when I discuss capitalism, I realize I'm using a, a character, you know, caricature mm-hmm. to a certain degree, but I think you're giving our antagonists way too much credibility because they really didn't have any redeeming factors at all. Well, I no, think, I think people. the only, one of the only positive things you could say is that they were trying to, in a way, maybe potentially it's still no they weren't even helping the fishing community right so to give a little context because you're right that that context is super huge here and this this part here is going to be really indebted to david collatz research so in the 60s we see a huge economic boom for japan um, especially after the war and obviously bombs being dropped on two major cities like you know, I would assume that would probably do something to your society and your, your economy. Um, so when Prime Minister uh, Ikeda was in, instituted in 1960, he, and I quote from Kalat, boldly announced he was going to see the incomes of the Japanese people double by the end of the decade. Um, that ended up happening in roughly eight years to the extent that the, the Japanese economy was only second to the United States. Mm. But as we saw in Matongo, progress can be a double-edged sword. 
And the economic boom came with the struggle of losing those long-held traditions and identities, right? So Kalat Kalat rightly points out that the ritualized property destruction that characterizes Japanese monster movies obsesses over the economic miracle in reverse. So all of this wealth and prosperity created so suddenly can disappear just as fast. So... To me, I don't even see that necessarily being capitalism, right? Because even if someone wants to advocate for more of a socialist economic structure, which I think has its merits, um, there is still going to be exploitation. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately, I think, is the issue here, right? It's not that capitalism is necessarily an evil construct. I have my issues with it. Rather, it's that right off the get-go, the fishing community they've been struggling, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I said in the, the synopsis is they've, they've been down on their luck. All of a sudden, this huge egg comes out of nowhere and they're like, hey, like we should, we should get it because our fishing's been bad. This is going to get us out of this hole. But Kumayama, you know, he's not necessarily wealthy compared to Torohada. He not only exploits that egg for his own gain, but he takes advantage of that fishing community. Right. We see that where, you know, they need that money that they were promised to survive because they're not getting their fishing. The fishing isn't just food. It's their livelihood. It's all their jobs. They're relying on Kumiyama to pay. They have rent that he's agreed to. They've, you know, it was uh, eight yen, you know, for an egg. And it was like, what, however many. So it ended up being, you know, one million or so yen that they were waiting on. But Kumiyama doesn't care. He's concerned about how much money he can make. And we even see this wealth discrepancy between Kumiyama and Torahada, where Kumiyama is like, well, I'm, we could probably make 50 million yen off of this, whereas Torahada is like, no, we're going to make a billion, right? So there we start seeing that there's a discrepancy even within the elite is you have people that have money, they're wealthy, but they still want more. And then you have someone who has more money than anyone could ever dream of, yet what happens when the, the Shobijin show up and they think someone broke in? He looks outside, but the first place he checks after that is to make sure all of his money's there. Yeah. Right? Like that's the kind of person he is where he will exploit Kumiyama to make more money. He's going to get make Kumiyama take out a loan to just do all this. So the exploiter is now being exploited. So it's this, it's this trickle down. It's less about the capitalism and more about the fact that we as humans take advantage of each other for our own gain. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm willing to walk back a little bit, but um, I guess <laughs> I guess what it comes down to is like, well, and maybe this is a good, I could use myself as a good case study because I think we do see this kind of stuff happen so often that mm-hmm. I'm so used to it that I would see this as something that's good. And not see it as something that's kind of painful. But, you know, if we want to bring theology into this sooner than we have before, like, there's a reason Jesus talks so much about money. There's a reason Uh that, you know, Eastern traditions are so concerned with materiality in as much as it changes you. Like, it's not just like you get more money and you're the same person with more money. But when you, like, truly love it, when you truly, like, define yourself by your materiality by your materials like you just you just start to shift you see people as less human at this in a certain sense so yeah 
Well, in a way, I would assume it's because you are becoming less human, right? Or at less of who you're supposed to be when we kind of saw that with Matango, where when they were focused on themselves, that selfishness, that's what caused them to go down that route. So, but you know, what's interesting though, and I don't remember, I wish I would have wrote this in my notes, but the character that is doing all of the, the landscaping, um, he's trying to, he's doing some kind of construction, right? So, of course, his concern is about being painted in a positive light, but he he's kind of the other side of this coin where they're in the end, well, in the end, in the, the middle, where the last time we see him, you know, they're trying to test the radiation because they found, like, wait, this this thing, which I don't think it's ever explained what that blue piece of material is. Like, it's radioactive, I'm assuming it has something to do with Mothra, like part of the egg, but they never say what it is. Um, so they go back there and they're testing for the radiation. He shows up. He's like, you know, what are you guys doing here? And hey, you know, we're testing for radiation. Like his concern isn't that, wait a minute, we just did all of this construction. There's radiation here. <laughs> like he's not stopping to think about what that would do to people. He's just like, no, I want to keep going. Right. And like, how often do we see that though? Where I guess now maybe it's a little bit more commonplace, but like with asbestos, mm-hmm. uh, asbestos, excuse me, and with like lead paint, right? I mean, that's something that we're now dealing with. But years prior, it was like, oh, it's an issue. And people knew it was an issue, but they just kept going. Yeah. So that reminded me of that or the dollar in that sense is, well, how can we cut corners? We're going to exploit people in a way and affect their health like how huge is that Mm -hmm. well and i think um you bring in asbestos and i have experience with uh, almost moving into a building and they're like oh well just don't kick the ceiling because there's asbestos and it's like well i don't in healthy buildings kick the ceiling (laughs) but if you have to tell me what to do to avoid it i should just not live here but i think it's interesting because within the context of the movies like I knew asbestos was bad, but I didn't know why it was bad. In the Godzilla Mm -hmm. franchise, we have many stories tall examples of why radioactivity is bad. So it's even more glaring here that they can overlook it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of where I was at too. I'm right. And like, you guys aren't that far removed from what happened. And, but isn't that it though? Where, I mean, we're now dealing with people who deny that the Shoah ever happened, you know? And I'm like, Mm. like really you see all these images of concentration camps and you're just going to pretend like that didn't matter. So I think unfortunately we can say how these things are important, but if it's convenient for us to forget, we will. Mm -hmm. Yep. But, um, yeah, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot, I feel like. I, th- I feel like the the other element of the exploitation is a little bit bigger to dive into, but did anyone else have any thoughts about that before we move on? <laughs> Everyone's shaking their head no, so we're going to go with no. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, I love how we're shaking our heads on a podcast. We really <laughs> got the medium down. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think the problem is we've got the the video chat, right? So we're just assuming like, oh, wait. Um, (laughs) But no, I think the exploitation here 
is really big. And that plays into this next part. And that's kind of why I was like, hey, segue. So what I love is with Collat, he brings back the significance of the 1961 film, right? So that's what we've talked about before, where are these films really connected? Some are, some aren't. They didn't really have these grand plans of a, you know, Toho cinematic universe the way that uh, they're planning on doing now, which will be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, but, you know, in the first film, the Shobi Jin are captured, right? I mean, that's big part of the film. But I think the thing that we didn't necessarily touch on as much, and maybe I'm forgetting, is the Relicican government allowed it to happen. Yeah. Right? So that's something to keep in mind where the Shobijin are coming back. So when they come back and we see the apprehension that the infant island natives have, it makes sense because they've already gone through this before, right? For them to come back is a huge deal. So not only have they had that moment happen, because that's what one of the chief, the chief says, right? You know, we trusted you guys once and you betrayed us. But Mm -hmm. I mean, they got bombs dropped on them. Like, why would they have any positive view of the outside world? So, you know, it's this idea, like, you know, Honda is trying to throw or Honda and Sekizawa are trying to throw that shame back into the forefront of the film is, well, you didn't help us then. And you didn't help us now Mm. with getting the egg back. So now you're coming to our island and asking us for help. Like, who do you think you are? Yeah. Kind of attacks that superpower, like, pride that we can have. It's it was it's a nice reversion from what we normally expect, where they would just be, oh, yeah, sure, we'll help. It's kind of nice. It's a little human tension in there. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so in terms of, like, being a direct sequel, though, this one is, is uh, this is not really a huge point. I just this is one that I thought was interesting personally. In a lot of modern movies, if I went to go see, you know, movie two, movie three, or movie two thousand twenty, the reboot from forty years ago, like mm-hmm. it would walk me, it would hold my hand through the whole thing. It would be like, oh, it's okay, you haven't seen the first one. It's okay, you haven't seen number two. We're here for you. This is the only one you have to see. This one, I very much felt like I would have been lost had I not seen a couple of the background ones. And I thought yeah. that was, I just thought that was interesting how it was made back in the 60s. Was it like, oh, you haven't seen my previous movies? Well, you're in for a rough couple hours. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's that's where it's like you have the part where they're in the forest, right? And already there's the the comment of, oh, it's Mothra's egg. And they're like, Mothra? Like, do you believe that? Like there's already that understanding that who it would be. Right. Right. There there is no, oh, tell us who Mothra is. And now we get this five minute exposition of what had happened in a previous film. Mm-hmm. Well, the name is already Mothra, so you've kind of built it built in. <laughs> yeah. But the guys from uh, Monsters vs. Men brought up a really good point about this film is that this film definitely feels more like a Mothra film than what we've had with Godzilla mm. previously. And I think even with King Kong versus Godzilla, right? It's a different kind of film. So it's it's almost like with these past two films, they've been exploring what it means to be a Godzilla film. Because obviously before that, all we had was Gojira and then 
Godzilla rates again. So it's kind of been growing pains to a certain degree. But there's a lot of a lot of obviously carryover from the previous film that if you've never watched it before, I don't think you would pick up on the nuances this time around. And that's a good point. This is like the last kaiju. It kind of the way Last Jedi looks at why do we like Star Wars? What's the core of Star Wars and how can we play within its sandbox but shift it a little bit? I think this is a pretty this is a cool exploration of what is it? What's a Godzilla film? What's a kaiju film? Why do we use these set pieces compared to regular sized animals? Why do they have to be kaiju instead of like lions? I think that's a really good point. Maybe I'll listen to their podcast now. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. They're pretty short episodes too. Um, but Ben, I mean, so growing up, you said this wasn't one of your favorites. You revisited it, you know, in 2014. I mean, have you spent a lot of time with the 1961 film? No, I've last time I watched it was roughly 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was never really a go-to movie for myself, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, it, it was considered by not just the Japanese fans, but also us Western fans. You know, it was a top tier movie produced mm-hmm. by Toho. Yeah, and I, I've kind of grown to the opinion that some of the best films in the franchise are the ones where there's just one monster, right? So you've got Gojira, Rodan, Mothra, Shin Godzilla. I mean, to me, those are four of the best films out of this entire series. So yeah, I just I didn't know how familiar you were with that just because, like I said, I think having that point of reference adds a lot, but I it's hard for me to say, oh, you don't have to watch it to appreciate because I've I can't just unwatch Mothra, mm-hmm. so I have no idea. Um, so right. I was kind of curious how you felt about that. Um, but moving on, and this is kind of where I want to move, you know, keep the conversation, you know, circling around between the three of us is, you know, when we get to the scene where they go to the hotel and they discover the Shobijin, right? When they return, the Shobijin leave because they don't feel like the humans are making any headway Mm -hmm. into getting the egg back. It's not that the kindness isn't appreciated, right? And this is where I feel like the film really kicked my butt yesterday. Is like It's not that they didn't appreciate the kindness, but kindness isn't always enough when it comes to getting things done in injustice, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, hey, you know, we appreciate your help, but you didn't get this done. Yeah. this is what's going to be the result of it, right? So, of course, they realize, like, we need to ask for help. You know, uh, Sakai isn't dense enough to recognize that asking, you know, won't go far. Like, he realizes, like, if we ask, they're not going to help us because we weren't able to help. But Mira, Professor Mira, is really hoping that he's like, you know, if we can appeal to them with just this really sincere, you know, uh, just asking them sincerely on behalf of everyone, who's going to suffer because of Godzilla, maybe they'll help. But that's what's so interesting about this film is they get to the island and they still say no. Mm. Right? Like right. they they get there. Hey, here's this red drink. You know, don't don't get worse with the radioactivity. Right? They're, <laughs> they're still willing to help. Mm-hmm. 
but they're still like, no, we're not going to help. Like, how would you guys feel if that was you, right? It's like, hey, Godzilla's about to like destroy everything I love and own. Like, like, wouldn't it be really easy to kind of just be like, why are you guys being selfish? Mm -hmm. Like, there's a part of me where I'm like, why would you guys not help? But I don't know. Like, it's like, how did you guys feel about that? Hmm. I feel like I'm a teacher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got the teacher, you got the student who read the material and you got the student who like, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, I think we have this, I, I, I think maybe what you're getting at, or at least what I was hearing in the question is with the severity of Godzilla, that seems like it should override maybe what were, what they deserve or what they expected. It'd be kind of mm -hmm. like, well, frick, man, like, I know I ran over your wife and your dog with a car twice. Like, but can't you help me? I'm in a lot of trouble. Like, like if we've, we would think that like something like Godzilla should override that. And I kind of am happy that it didn't because then mm -hmm. it gave them a lot of agency still, because I think in a lot of times, like Godzilla could overwrite their agency and kind of rob them like a character moment. Because how do you say no to Godzilla? So to have them say no, I think it was a real kind of like, I thought it was such like a cool moment, even though I was kind of like, oh, well, geez, it's Godzilla, guys. Like, please. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Ben? That's all I was thinking. Uh, as far as my viewpoints, when it comes to that whole uh, scenario, you know, they made their point clear. Okay, you couldn't help us. Why should we help you? What's in it for us if we do help you? Mm -hmm. And it's like, hey, remember what you guys did to our island too, right? Yeah. Like we're in this position yeah. because mm -hmm. of y'all. Mm -hmm. So the reason I ask, and if you're not done, Ben, I'll edit it out. <laughs> No, I'm done. <laughs> okay. No, I just, I want to make sure. Cause the reason I asked that, and there's, there's a reason why I went with the teacher route is because I was sitting here and thinking about like, okay, there's something here that I'm missing. And it hit me that we went and watched the Mothra film. Right. And we viewed Mothra as a, a divine being, mm -hmm. right. Where mm -hmm. Mothra does as she pleases, you know, the Shoshobi Jin in a sense, are like a, they're prophetesses. Right. Mm -hmm. So, on the one hand, you have the chief who says Mothra won't help, right? It's the outside world's fault for playing with the devil's fire, the fire forbidden by the gods. And he says, you know, like, we have no faith in outsiders. We trusted them once and we're repaid with treachery. So even though their apprehension is understandable, like, I think we all would agree that, like, this is incredibly important to understand that, like, even if they directly are not responsible there's still some agency and responsibility that they have to take on. Is it the chief's place or even the Shobijin's place to say what Mothra will or won't do? Hmm. So, hmm. you know, the Shobijin may trust the protagonist, but they still have their own experiences. So it's like, I understand where they're coming from, but you're talking about the agency of the humans. But what about Mothra? If we view Mothra as a divine being with divine agency and even with some kind of divine justice, mm -hmm. you know, here, here's kind of the thing is like, you know, Junko, I, I think in this film and I will bring up 
the point that you want me to do, Chris. Um, Junko is the voice of reason in this film. Mm-hmm. Like, I love, love, love the fact that with this film, you know, it's not this contemporary film where you just get beat in the head with like, hey, misogyny is bad. Misogyny is bad. No, it's like you have Sakai who continually tells Junko what she's doing is wrong, only for it to be in the climax of the film. She's the one who's saying what needs to be said, and he gives her the space to speak because he realizes when he takes the time to listen, she's the only one saying anything of any sense, right? Mm -hmm. So in this moment, she says, no one deserves to die because of Godzilla, not even the bad ones. So the Islanders may see this as divine retribution. They see it Mm -hmm. as, well, this is, you reap what you sow. But in the Christian tradition, that is not what Jesus says. Mm -hmm. Jesus does away with reaping what you sow. It's rather you get what you get because of the grace of God. So in this moment, Mothra speaks. And it is this moment, this plea of grace and forgiveness that as soon as she's done speaking, Mothra speaks up. And I'm just like, I don't know. Like it's it's incredible to me that not saying that injustice needs to be ignored, but I think of my own this contemporary situation that we have where I know we say we don't want to get political in the podcast and I don't want to create a debate. <laughs> but when we see people suffering and we say, well, this is what the law says, or we say, you know, they did it to themselves, what does God say? Mm-hmm. Right. It's mm-hmm. not about what we say or what we think or what we feel, because we can say that the laws are just, you know, don't break the laws. But God knows every single dang evangelical will pray, even if the law says that, you know, you can't pray. Right. Mm-hmm. That's never going to happen in the United States. But <laughs> laws are only as convenient until you disagree with them. You mm-hmm. know, you need to get to the hospital. You're going to speed. So the point being, it's not our place to say who doesn't receive grace and forgiveness it's whatever god i guess we say we worship right and so in this it's just incredible to see that mothra just gets that moment of agency mm-hmm. like nope you my followers don't understand what i will or won't do and i just i sat there last night and i'm like all right well honda's preaching tonight <laughs> Well, and to go off that a little too, it, Mothra had that agency in the last film when mm-hmm. to go rescue them last time. So Mothra can save whoever Mothra wants to save, no matter what. Yep. But it was it was interesting that this is a response to the plea here. And again, not to get into the into some sort of gender essentialism. But the feminine is very this fe- the feminine aspect is very strong in this movie, where yeah. you're you're right it's it doesn't it doesn't beat us over the head with like misogyny is bad, Obvi- obviously it is like that's not the discussion. This quest- discussion is like how is it presented, and in this one we have it the Shobijin are the ones who say your kindness can only go so far. We really kind of need results. It's her speaking up that gets Mothra prompts to go. Like when when they have a chance to speak, it puts other characters in the place, and I really love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just this is where I'm like, these films wouldn't have anything to say if it wasn't for the humans, mm-hmm. right? You know, and that's to me. This is why I love this film. I mean, I did before, but when that kind of all clicked in. You know, it's this idea that 
not only is Mothra going to, you know, extend this forgiveness and save humanity, but she's going to give up her own life to do it, you know, and that, that right there. And you look at the end of it is this world that our, our protagonists want to make. It only happens when we trust one another. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really what I took away from it is especially in our political climate right now, we are so worried about, we, we want to ostracize and make people the other based on their political ideologies. And to a certain degree, I understand there has to be some kind of safety, especially when people do promote subjugation mm-hmm. on the one hand, or when you have people promote such radical lack of forgiveness. Like It's almost to the point where it's like, I agree with you on 90% of things, but you are so unwilling to love and forgive people that I can't be around you because of that, right? So there's there's two ends of the, and there's multiple ends to this whole conversation, but that's what Honda and Sekizawa are saying here is that if the world is going to progress, we have to learn to trust one another. You know, we have to learn how to, you know, I think like Bonhoeffer says, we have to, you know, judge people less on what they do or don't do and in light of what they suffer. Right. So that's what these natives had to do is they looked at the outside world and they're like, they they couldn't justify it, but once Mothra put things into perspective, they realized like, okay, well, these innocent people don't deserve to die. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we we should do something. And let's be honest, you know, if they didn't do something, Godzilla would destroy Japan, and then Godzilla would probably destroy Infant Island too, right? If they didn't do anything, I mean, Godzilla would have destroyed the egg. Mothra would have died. Like that could have potentially ended the cycle. You know, I thought about that too. I'm like, what would have happened mm-hmm. <laughs> if they didn't step in? One of the things I'd like to add to that, if I can get this little piece in, <clears throat> when it when it comes to Mothra's sacrifice, mm-hmm. now this is just my perspective and the way I look at it. That to me was basically like Jesus giving up his life. Mm-hmm. Although he takes on the devil, in the end, the devil may have won that fight. He did not win the war mm-hmm. with Mothra's twin caterpillars being reborn. You know, that's basically the new life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From rising from the tomb. You know, and I think obviously Honda not being a Christian, even though Subaraya was, mm-hmm. um, you know, you could probably view it as like, you know, the idea of reincarnation and all these things, but that whole prevalence of giving up one's life and recognizing that death is not the ultimate victor. Right. So right. with, with our belief in Christianity, we believe that death, you know, you're right. The, this battle may have lost, but the overall war has been won through that self-sacrifice, through that compassion, through that act of saving mm-hmm. another. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and if I may, like the, the infant Island, they, they, you could, I don't want to be too dogmatic about it, but there's a Peter esque moment there. When Peter's like, no, Jesus, don't die. Like, you have a different mm-hmm. sort. Our control over the deity, our interaction with God looks different. And that's you being with us. That's you being on our side. And then Jesus says, no, I have something else that I have to do. I have to do this a different way. And essentially, Mothra is in that same boat. But what 
Peter learns and what Infinite Island eventually learns is like having them die is the best thing to happen because not only does it save them, but it saves everyone else. It, I mean, Godzilla mm-hmm. might eventually wreck all of humanity. So it's that self-sacrificial death that helps not only them, but everybody. But you get something better back. It's not just like Mothra's dead now forever. It's not like Jesus stays there forever. But both mm-hmm. find new life in their own different ways. It's just having let go of our control over our talismanic control over the deity to say that it's good that they have their own minds. It's good that I don't have control in this iron grip over what they can and cannot do. Mm-hmm. So to kind of wrap this up, because we still have to do viewer questions too. We this will probably be to one do. of our longest episodes. Yes, 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 Chris. <laughs> Semantics. Um, so I did think it was really interesting. Just minor, minor point. First of all, Every time that uh, June Tazaki's character came on, my son's like, that guy's really cranky. Um, I just, these little comments he makes, makes me laugh. Um, so it's interesting that with the Japanese, you know, self-defense forces, like they were so close to defeating Godzilla. Mm-hmm. And then they had to push the generators past capacity, right? I'm like, first of all, thanks for not doing that because now we got all these other movies but like you guys could have really saved the day and not we could have avoided all this but you know that's what you get it just kind of honda's way of reminding us that the military is uh not as capable mm. as they think they are um watching a bunch of ultra q lately it's mind-blowing how much better like with the effects with the egg cracking how much better it was in this film compared to Ultra Q. Because in Ultra Q, what they would have done is have like a painting pop up with all the cracks, right? <laughs> and mm-hmm. it wouldn't be nearly as good in this one. I'm like, oh, that's actually, I've just, I've been watching so much of that to the point that my wife's like, I'm tired of Ultra Q. Um, <laughs> that poor so, woman, she wants to watch something in English for once. Yeah, no, she, she wants to finish The Irishman. And I told her we will. I just haven't been in the mood. Um, <laughs> Got a headache. and then uh last thing so mickey yashiro uh, we last saw her in matongo so she was the school teacher in this film but in matongo she was the student so someone got a nice promotion the student has become the master now (laughs) yeah um and yeah the whole thing about mothra when the caterpillars spray the silk it's a different pitch i don't know i just love that It it was a nice little touch I've noticed it before, but I always enjoy it. Hmm. What about you guys? Anything that stood out? Um, just kind of that doesn't really fit into the conversation. Well, maybe just sponsored by your thought. And I've talked about this a little before, but as I've been watching a little uh, Super Sentai Zhu Ranger, which is the one that became Mighty Morphin Power Rangers over here, like the difference between 64 people in costumes and 90 two people in costumes isn't a huge gap and i thought that was just i don't have a big point about that either i just thought that was kind of funny that's all of my you just additional hit the microphone i dropped my phone on the bottom of the desk <laughs> <laughs> that's all my commentary so ben if yeah. you've got any more please save me <laughs> i uh, actually have none to give out <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you'll have some thoughts here. So we've got uh, four questions. Um, 
The first comes from Instagram land from the Kaiju archives. Uh, the guys over there, I think it's two guys. Maybe it's just one. Um, they did the Toho cut of King of the Monsters. So they went through the new film and they replaced the music with older music. They replaced the roars with the classic roars. They edited out the gonorrhea joke. What? So <laughs> yeah, I would uh, definitely suggest uh, watch, talk to them before they take that down. Um, but their question is, what do you think makes Mothra vs. Godzilla smarter than most kaiju films and how it's more than just another versus creature feature? Um, I've already kind of talked my share on this episode. So Ben and Chris, what do you guys think? <laughs> Chris, I've had it. Okay. Yeah, I think just the universality of the conversation changes it a bit. I think the... Part of part of it, I think, you know, I haven't seen enough kaiju movies to know if this is true, but I loved having so many different f- factions. That's not the right word, but there's so many different groups with their own interests in this movie, where it's not just like in other movies where it's like antagonist protagonists. If you're a good guy, you all agree. If you're a bad guy, you all agree. But there's so many different layers to how many different groups and how many different interests are represented in the movie where it doesn't feel like anyone is totally right. doesn't feel like anyone is exactly um, the one to root for. They can all learn from each other. They can all challenge each other. So I think that was a really I think that was a really much appreciated dynamic shift there. Well, Chris kind of just stole my answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should have talked first. <laughs> well, I, That's what you get for what? being kind. No. So, yeah, I just I think it's you're right. It's that universality where some of these films we're going to find are definitely more confined to that time period, I think, with the messaging. Whereas this one is definitely something that there's a lot that can be said for sure. Um so Nathan Marchand, he, uh, as mentioned before, Monster Island Film Vault. Um, so <clears throat> it's a comment and question. So he says, I discovered this film back in the vin- video rental store days, back when a Godzilla source could still be found in the wild, you know. Spoiler warning, Chris, that joke will one day make sense. Oh, great. Um, when, when it was sold under the title Godzilla vs. Mothra. I have no idea why the names were reversed, especially since it was released stateside as Godzilla vs. The Thing, and the Marvel Comics character is nowhere to be found. (laughs) I'm almost sure this was the first time I even knew the Shobijin ever existed, but I went with it. It wasn't high on my list of G-films at first, but I've grown to love it. It doesn't break any new ground, but what it does well, but what it does, it does well. It's no wonder it's become, in many ways, the definitive Godzilla film. And I think that's a really good way to explain it. Maybe not the best Godzilla film, but like I would say like the definitive film, I, I, I would go with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. everything just comes together. Honda's direction, Sekizawa's script, the acting, Super Eye's special effects. Also, I never thought in my life I would be able to look at a name like Super Eye and being able to pronounce that without <laughs> thinking about it. God, what is my life? Mm. Um, so it's wonderful. Not my life, his comment here. Uh, as great as Mothra 1961 is, I think the Shobijin are better here because they feel more like characters and aren't the MacGuffin of the film. Mm. Plus, the Peanuts are still the best incarnation of the fairies. So question for you guys. 
What Christological parallels do you see in Mothra in this film? I think Subaraya actually develops them a bit more from God, from Mothra in 1961. Thoughts? Godspeed, gentlemen. Yeah, I wasn't going to spoil it, but we already covered that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but his comment was awesome, so I wasn't not going to read it. Um, but yeah, Nathan, you, you obviously know we were going to cover that, and we did. So, um, so next two questions come from Twitter. Uh, first, and I'm super thankful we've had so much activity and replies and conversations on Twitter recently. Um, I think that's partially because work's been slow, so I've been on there more than lately, more than normal. Um, but y'all have been great, so please keep it up. But uh, Joshua Strip Matter. Um, asked, what is your favorite Godzilla moment in this movie? And Ben, you are going first. <laughs> My favorite moment with Godzilla. Uh, probably the fact when he's swimming to the island where the school children are trapped. A lot of people don't realize this, but that's not the 64 suit. That is actually the 62 uh, King Goji suit. Huh. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. Huh. And the fun fact of it is, too, it's not just that one particular shot that we actually seen the uh, King Goji suit used again, but when Godzilla is wrapped up in the silk and goes tumbling off into the ocean, that was the last that we saw of the 62 suit. May it rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, what about you, Chris? And I will say for some reason, Squadcast did not change our plan to unlimited. So apparently we have five recording minutes left for this month. So we're going to have to wrap this up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we can save it for our next short episode. Um, (laughs) I think it doesn't count if I say the tail thing again, because now I know it was just a dude in a prop, but that was cool. I thought that looked pretty cool, but now I know it wasn't all of Godzilla, it's just his tail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think that makes it cooler. So I'll agree with that. So I'm gonna go ahead and skip to the last question because now apparently it's two minutes. Oh, um, since a good chunk of the plot this is from William of Space Tree Studios, by the way. So, since a good chunk of the plot revolves around Mothra's egg, it has to be asked scrambled, poached, or sunny side. Oh. Neither go boiled. <laughs> yeah, hard boiled. I hard think they boiled. even make that joke, right? <laughs> All right. I'm I'm eating my egg. <laughs> I'm gonna go with the off-world Jawas from Mandalorian. You just chop the top off and just stick your hand in the yolk. What do they say? Like Shuba. <laughs> Suka. I don't what it was. Suka. Suka, that was it. Yeah. But uh yeah, we're going to have to end kind of awkwardly here. Um, <laughs> ben, thank you for joining us. Uh, really, thank you. Uh, it thank was you for awesome having me. That you were... Oh, man. Oh, okay. So we have 10-minute grace period. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But let's just go ahead and end anyway. Yeah. Um, seriously, thank you so much for joining. Uh, you were just... It's, it's been awesome to get to know you. I don't know. It's probably been the past six months or so. Um, I'm very excited to... Uh, you know, just keep having you involved in this process, however that may look. Um, definitely make sure to keep an eye out for the interviews that he's doing. Um, I know who he's interviewing. I even kind of helped get one going unknowingly, which was really cool. 
Um, <laughs> but as you do those, uh, we will definitely make sure to share them on the profile um, to get you some uh, some traction there. Do you know when your first one's going to be going up? Well, I had promised one would go up this week, but since I have to go back and verify the Japanese, it could be sometime next week. Okay. Cool. So probably by the time this episode comes out, um, it could be up. So just definitely keep an eye out on our Twitter pages. Um, apart from that, I think the only thing I wanted to share is we are doing another giveaway. Just really simple. Um, someone donated their download code for the uh, Ultraman series. So first person to at us on Twitter or direct message us on Instagram. Um, or if you don't have either of those, just email me at uh, contact at the kaijuapostle.com. Uh, I will view the timestamps. The first person to do that will get the download code. Um, does anyone have any thoughts before we say goodbye? No, just remember to keep up with, you know, in- Instagram, we'll be sharing stuff. We'll be sharing like, Patreon stuff with I we got our first show notes sent out already right from last week's episode yeah I, I've actually got all the show notes at least on my end um, all the notes are there for everyone to view yeah so so it's a good reason to sign up you can read David's notes that didn't make it in you can read all three or four of mine that definitely make it in that I stretch further than they may have the ability to go <laughs> Yeah. And we did, I think we talked about that last time. We retweaked the tiers to one, three, and five. Um, and we are discussing doing a once a month bonus, like maybe 20 to 30 minutes um, bonus video slash episode where we go into films that aren't necessarily kaiju films or maybe ones that just didn't fit into our schedule, like uh, Dogura. Um, we're probably going to do like uh, Space Amoeba. Um, so, haven't really decided. How solid of an idea that is. Uh, we are toying that out. Um, but if we do decide to do that, we will inform everyone online. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks again for tuning in and uh, have a great day. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Kaiju Apostle Podcast. If you liked what you heard, don't be a stranger. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Kaiju Apostle Pod. To make sure you don't miss any future episodes, you can subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. Lastly, we do have a Patreon page where we have some great perks, including early access to the episodes, show notes, and the ability to have your voice recordings featured on the show. Again, we appreciate the support, and we look forward to hearing from you.